Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on February 12th of 2012 under the headline, Fog Made the Difference Between a Reprimand and a Medal. Here we go. Legendary U.S. Coast Guard motor lifeboat operator, Master Chief Thomas McAdams, always knew the weather could have a big impact on his life. What he wasn't expecting was for a fog bank to make the difference between getting reprimanded and possibly demoted and being awarded the Coast Guard's top life-saving medal. But that's exactly what happened one June day in 1957, when McAdams and his crew saved four people from drowning in the surf near the mouth of Uquina Bay. McAdams is a legend in the Newport area, and probably the most famous Coast Guard enlisted man ever. He started his career in 1950, and by the time he retired in 1977, he'd participated in some 5,000 rescues and saved at least 100 people from drowning. He'd survived nine rolls in which his motor lifeboat was fully capsized by the surf, and he had to hold his breath and wait for it to roll back upright. Crew members who went out with him said you could always tell how much trouble you were going to be in by watching the big cigar which he always kept burning in his mouth. If he took it out of his mouth, turned it around, and put the lid end into his mouth, you knew you were about to get very wet. And if you ever saw him spit it out, you took a deep breath and braced for impact because the boat was about to get rolled. On this particular day, McAdams got a call from the Coast Guard's observation tower that there was a pleasure boat in trouble just off the North Reef. Almost every boat the life station had just then was out rescuing somebody, and the only boat available for McAdams to take out was the brand new 52-foot motor lifeboat, the biggest boat in the station, the pride of the Coast Guard, the most expensive boat it had ever built. This 52-footer was completely unlike the 52-footer up at Point Adams, the Triumph, which sank on the bar four years later. This one had a steel hull and twin screws, and unlike the Triumph, it was made to roll. The beach and jetty were full of onlookers, all helping point the coasties to the spot, and it was a good thing, too, because the fog was fairly thick and visibility was short. When they got to the scene, McAdams knew the situation was serious. Quote, I could see the bottom of a 16, 18-foot capsized boat, and then I'd seen a couple of heads by it, McAdams said, according to a Coast Guard oral history interview. And I thought, oh my God, they're in the interbreakers. We've got to get them out. They'll never make it. The problem was, they were in about ten feet of water, with heavy swells, and the boat drew six feet. There was a pretty good chance, even with McAdams at the helm, that the boat, the gorgeous, new, super-expensive, 52-foot, twin-screw-rescue lifeboat, the pride and joy of the Coast Guard, would end up ignominiously stranded on the beach. McAdams doesn't seem to have even considered that. Let four people drown to save a Coast Guard asset? Wasn't in his DNA. Into the breakers he went, cigar fixed firmly in his teeth. He kept the boat in the crest of a swell and got within six feet of the upside-down boat, then dropped into the trough, and sure enough, the boat bounced hard on the sandy bottom. Quote, I could see four people in the water, and there was a man holding his wife, and his wife was not in very good shape, McAdams said. 
Her head was kind of going down, and he's yelling, Help! McAdams left the helm, ran to the rail, and leaped onto the upside-down hull of the capsized boat. From there he dove out into the surf, swam to the struggling couple, and dragged them back through the sea to the lifelines of the rescue boat. This whole time the boat was rolling heavily in the water, occasionally pushing the three of them under. Quote, I yelled to the fellows on deck, and they grabbed the woman and they pulled her on up, McAdams said. Well, they got the woman up, and I got up myself, and I heard help off the bow. It was the other two people, a man and a woman. Again, the woman was almost done for, and the man was fading fast as well. This time, McAdams sent one of the other guys to get them, and soon strong hands were pulling them aboard, first the woman, who wasn't breathing, and then, while a crew member resuscitated her, the man. Then McAdams and another crew member went and pulled the first man on board. Quote, and then I got him up on board, and I said, okay, we've got everybody, and then I heard help, McAdams remembered. Well, I said, who else is yelling help? Well, it was my seaman who I'd sent overboard, to rescue the second couple, you know. And he's so tired now and cold from being in the water that all he could do is barely hang on to the lifelines. Once the rescuer was safely rescued, McAdams sent everyone below decks except one crew member, a seaman named Schmidt. Quote, I'm going to need you to help me get this boat off the beach, he told him. The rescue boat was still bouncing on the sand with every passing wave. McAdams now looked up for the first time and realized that the fog had lifted. All around Chicken Hill, the park where the Bay Lighthouse is, and all across the bridge, people in cars were stopped and watching the rescue. They'd seen the whole thing. McAdams' dramatic leap to the upside-down hull and dive to pull the first couple to the boat the second couple being pulled aboard, the woman being worked on to get her breathing again, their obvious success in saving her, everything. Now they were going to watch McAdams and Schmidt either triumphantly get the boat out of the breakers and off the beach or ignominiously wash ashore and have to be rescued themselves. The two of them got busy. Once McAdams got on the power, the screws dug a big hole in the sandy bottom, so there was plenty of water under the boat. He just couldn't get out of the hole. Finally, he turned the boat around with the stern pointing out to sea, thinking, quote, if I can turn around and get my stern to the sea and get over that hump I built, I'll probably tear the steering out of the boat, but I've got twin screws. It worked, on both counts. McAdams brought the damaged boat triumphantly back into port, steering it with the two throttles. The local Coast Guard brass, the group commanding officers in charge of all the life stations, were furious. Quote, they were upset because I'd taken the most expensive lifeboat the Coast Guard had and beached it, and we could have lost the boat on the beach, McAdams said. And I said, but we saved four lives. What are they worth? Meanwhile, some of the people who'd been watching the show from the bridge and from Chicken Hill turned out to be VIPs. Telephone calls started pouring into the district admiral's office, including one from Governor Robert Holmes and another from the commander of the Oregon State Police. The local officers, fearing they'd get in trouble, hadn't told the district admiral's office any of the details, so the admiral didn't know what to say. Quote, The admiral's getting all these calls. All he's got is this little message, McAdams told author Dennis Noble. When the officers find out the admiral's asking about the rescue, they say, Yes, yes, we're going to hang those guys. The admiral's office quickly set the local officers straight on that score. They had something else in mind. Two gold life-saving medals and two silver ones. McAdams and his crew were heroes. But in 2005, when he talked to Noble, McAdams was still sounding a bit bemused by the role that fog bank played. Quote, If the fog hadn't lifted, I'd probably have been busted, he said. Key sources in this story have included works by Dennis L. Noble and the U.S. Coast Guard Historian's Office. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.